Good evening, everyone. Uh, good to see everyone out tonight. It's such a frigid night, so we appreciate you being here. Um, we're gonna, I'm, we're, the, uh, the men are passing out the hand that I prepared for tonight. We're studying chapter 10 of the book, How to Study the Bible. Uh, this chapter is about twisting scripture. And I'm going to take a little bit of a di different tact uh, tonight. So what I'm actually doing is uh, I'm going to examine a few hermeneutical principles um, because I think these principles will really help us um, as we kind of examine the three errors that Dr. Mayhew presents in the book, um, just because these principles, they're, they're helpful to kind of help us refute error of all sorts. Now, I mean, these are three very common errors that you'll see, but um, one of the best ways that you kind of can detect a, a counterfeit is if you are so familiar with the genuine article that you're able to detect any deviation from it. So, um, that's kind of what my tactic is here tonight. So, we're going to look at, uh, there's going to be five principles all total. Uh, they're kind of on the first page of the, of the handout there. Um, and then we're going to get into looking at the three errors in more detail. So, the, the verse that is in uh, chapter 10, and I think all throughout the book, is 2 Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And I think this verse is so often used when you're talking about hermeneutics, just because it's important that, that part of the verse there, rightly handling the word of truth, we recognize that that is our responsibility, that if you are a Christian, God expects that you will rightly handle his word. And that requires a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of study. So the implication is, if you don't put in that time and effort and study, you are at risk of not rightly handling the word of truth. So that is what we want to be, uh, part of the reason why we're here tonight. So getting into some of the, the hermeneutical principles. So when we talk of hermeneutics, it's really the, the study of principles and, and methods of interpreting the text of the Bible. So I, I, I suppose that hermeneutics can be in general, it's really how you interpret and you know, understand the text of any writing, but obviously tonight we're talking about as it relates to the Bible. So really it's about how the, the rules and principles we're using to understand what God means by what he says. And so the first principle I want to highlight is that God is the author of the Bible, and the meaning of the text is the meaning that God intended to communicate. Um, this, this might seem a little obvious, but with, the, with uh, so many of the errors that you see kind of happening, uh, both within the church and without, it seems that people uh, seem to forget this fairly often. The meaning of the text is objective. It is not subjective. We do not get to determine what we think the meaning of the Bible is. God is the one who determines the meaning. And even just in our own language, just in every day, this is fairly self-evident. When you're talking about speech, it's the speaker who determines what the meaning is. As the audience person, the one listening to someone else talk, it's not up to you to determine what the meaning is. Now, certainly the author may do such a poor job in communicating that the, the meaning may seem unclear, or maybe they weren't careful, so that it might be easy to misunderstand it. But if I were to tell you that my favorite ice cream flavor is Rocky Road, if you come away thinking that, oh, Charlie's allergic to dogs, there's been an error somewhere. <laughs> it's not up to you to determine the meaning of what I'm saying is. It's, it's, that's my prerogative. And then uh, principle number two, it's what I'm going to call the plain meaning rule. That is, we interpret the Bible as we would any other kind of literature. And so really, um, 
Think of it this way. The default position when we try to understand text is apply the literal meaning first. And that you need to rely on the text and other factors. If there's evidence that we shouldn't take it literally, then that's fine. We can go on from the literal meaning to other meanings. But the first default position is we want to try to see if it makes sense literally. And this is such a good quote. I believe it was from chapter 10. I might have pulled it from an earlier chapter, uh, but I know it's in the book. It's from David Cooper. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense, seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual, literal meaning, unless the facts of the immediate context studied in the light of related passages and axiomatic and fundamental truths indicate clearly otherwise. So we, you don't automatically assume that the text is being allegorical or using some sort of figurative language because unless there's evidence within the text to indicate that. All right, and then quickly going on to principle number three. Proper biblical interpretation requires understanding the text in light of the language, the culture, the history, and the geography. So, just quickly here. So, we're talking about language that includes all the, the words and their meaning, including the grammar, the figures of speech, and the verb tenses. And if you think about it, I, m- I remember I once had a discussion with a classmate of mine when I was back in middle school, and I, I was making the point that the Bible can be, can be understood, that God intended us to understand it. And he was like, well, how can you be so sure? When I try to read it, you know, I never know how to interpret it. Well, if you think about it, all languages have rules which govern its construction, its meaning, how we understand it. And God knows and understands this. Really, it is God who created language. He created the ways that we communicate. And so, a lot of times you can just take the, the guesswork out of understanding what a verse means if you just understand, her, if you just understand the grammar and the, and the rules of the language that, that we're talking about. And then also when you're talking about culture, you want to ask the question, what was the culture of the people to whom the text was written? How did the people live? Were there any special customs or habits that would be helpful to understand? You know, especially when you're talking about Old Testament peoples and cultures, that was thousands of years ago. These were people that lived very different lives. They had very different social customs. And if you go back and look at the text of the Old Testament, it's very clear that there's a lot of things going on in those cultures that don't really readily translate to ours. So you need to do extra homework in figuring, okay, what does this mean? What was the importance of this custom? And Because that's important because you want to understand the context because that would color or influence not only what God was trying to communicate but how the people would understand it. And we're talking about history. This is important because all the Bible occurs in the context of world history. It is therefore critical to have an accurate understanding of the historical events that occurred before, during, and after the text was written. You're going to have a lot of trouble understanding certain passages of the Old Testament if you don't understand that the the deportation of the Israelites to Babylon happened after King David was king in Israel. If you flip-flop the historical events, it's going to be very confusing. And then also talking about geography. Geography is going to be especially relevant anytime that you have verses or a passage where you're, where you're discussing ge- geographical locations or possibly even travel or things of that nature. 
So again, because it gives a more fuller picture of what's going on or how the people were living or if there's different constraints or, or issues that would pop up because of the geography, this is important and helpful to know. All right, and that brings us to principle number four, and that's that God has chosen to reveal his word to us. He wants, to understand, he wants us to understand the true meaning of the Bible. So, and also, God is, he is intelligent, he is rational, and God loves order and clarity. God is not a God of confusion. He did not give the Bible in such a way as to hide the meaning. And so if God wants us to know him, if he wants us to understand him, if he wants us to, to hunger for him the way that a, an infant hungers for pure milk, it wouldn't make sense for God to intentionally try to frustrate us, to confuse the meaning, or to give us annoying little puzzles. I mean, God, is, he, he tries to make it easy. Now, that doesn't mean that every verse in the Bible is really easy to understand, but it, it does mean that you don't need to expect to jump through all sorts of confusing hoops and puzzles to try to figure out what God was talking about. All right, and I'm actually going to get to principle number five a little bit later on uh, in the lesson here, just because it kind of dovetails nicely with one of the errors we're going to be talking about here. And error number one that Dr. Mayhew goes over in chapter 10 is the error of redefining. And redefining, that is the error of giving historically accepted biblical words new definitions to usually, and it's done to support a person's theology. Now, when, just kind of as a quick uh, kind of note here. So the, the, the way he's, the way Dr. Mayhew's entitled the different errors, so in this case redefining, it's, it's more important that we understand, I guess, the nature of the error involved more than just its title. I mean, I suppose you could call uh, this error maybe different, different names, um, and you'll see the same thing with a couple of the other errors we're going to look at. Um, but again, it's important to understand that this, this talks about subtly shifting the meaning of words. And so I'll get, kind of go over an example as, as how this kind of plays out. So let's take the example of uh, the self-esteem movement. So there's a very popular author in this movement, Robert Schuller. And for those of you that don't know, the self-esteem movement is really, uh, they're all about interpreting the Bible and interpreting Christianity as it's God's responsibility to try to make sure that our needs are satisfied before anything else can happen. And so, Robert Schuller, his book, in Self-Esteem, the New Reformation. In, in this book, he kind of defines sin, hell, and salvation. But he does so in a way that is, it's, it's a little different than how the Bible does it. And I want to kind of delve into how that works out. So, in his book, uh, Mr. Schuller talks about, he defines sin as any human condition or act that robs God of glory by stripping one of his children of the right to divine dignity. Okay, well, let's ask the question, how does the Bible define sin? So, I want, to, can I, have a, I want three volunteers. Can I have one volunteer to look up Romans chapter 3, verse 23? Royal, thank you very much. Can I get a, a second volunteer to look up 1 John chapter 5, verse 17? Uh, Justin, you can take that one. And then a third volunteer for 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Go, go ahead. And Arroyo, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read Romans 3, chapter 23, or chapter 3, verse 23. Okay. All right. Justin, do you have 1 John, chapter 5, verse 17? All righteousness is 
Okay? And finally, First uh, John chapter 3, verse 4. Okay, thanks guys, I appreciate it. So yes, just to reiterate, so Romans 3.23 talks about falling short of God's glory. And then 1 John chapter 5, verse 17 talks about sin as being unrighteousness. And then finally, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 talks about that sin is lawlessness. So how does that, how does that so when you can kind of compare these two, What's going on here? So the Bible defines sin one way, but this doesn't really seem to, to line up with how Mr. Schuler is defining sin in his book. But, it, but I mean, the, the, this is a problem because, again, this is rather subtle. So when we're talking about sin, and when maybe Mr. Schuler is talking about sin, clearly we're not talking about the same thing. Because his definition of sin is, it has a, what, a very much more of a man-centered kind of focus. Because it's talking about um, you know, rot, that, you know, stripping us of our right to divine dignity. But that's not, that, that's, a, that's a far cry from lawlessness and unrighteousness. And then again, he goes on in his book in different places to define hell as the, it is the loss of pride that usually, or that naturally follows separation from God, the ultimate and unfailing source of our soul's sense of self-respect, end quote. All right, well, how does the Bible describe hell? I'll go ahead and read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14. It reads, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So a couple of notable differences here, that it talks about that as hell being an actual place, whereas Mr. Schuler seems to define it as more of like a, a state of mind. So there's that. Um, but also... You know, I mean, hell is really, it's experienced after death. It's not something we experience in this life. So again, he tends to, he really shifts from the real definition of, of hell. And then finally, when you're talking about salvation, you know, what does it mean to be saved? Mr. Schuler defines it as, it means to be permanently lifted from sin and shame to self-esteem and its God-glorifying human need-meeting constructive and creative consequences. So, really, but when the Bible talks about salvation, it, ta- it, it includes things like repentance from sin in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, or it's, it includes believing the truth about Christ in Romans 10, verse 9, and then also being delivered by God from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Christ in Colossians 1, verse 13, and as those who are dead in sin being made alive with Christ in Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 5. So again, so again, I want us to see like why this is so dangerous because it's very subtle and it tends to, if you're not careful, it tends to shift what the real meaning is. It distorts it. So that's the danger involved, guys. And so that's why a lot of times you need to be very careful. And if you kind of go back to, you know, I want to highlight this real quickly when talking about hell, there is a, he is partially right here that, I mean, hell is separation from God. So that's, this is another kind of thing that's true about errors, that the most destructive errors are the ones that are partially true. If there's some truth to it, it can be a lot more difficult to, to realize that it is error, because if you're not discerning enough, it's like, oh, okay, well, that, that seems to follow. So it can be easy to miss. All 
All right, and then um, also this is another example of redefining is I want to take a look at when you're talking about using numbers in the Bible. Um, and so in, in, in the book, How to Study the Bible, so Dr. Mayhew, he cites um, Revelation 20, and he's citing, uh, depending on the translation, your Bible will talk about um, either a thousand years and or the millennium. This is in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 6. And so the question here is, does this... The, the word millennium or the number of thousand years, does this refer to a literal thousand year period? Or is this merely just referring to a period of time that's indefinitely long, but one that can't be calculated? So again, this, is, this falls under redefining because when we're talking about a millennium, that is literally a thousand years. So let's kind of take a look at this. So real quick before we kind of get further in, this is principle number five. Numbers in the Bible should be accepted at face value. That is, they convey a mathematical quantity unless there is substantial evidence to indicate otherwise. So that probably gives you an indication of, of how Dr. Mayhew believes that this verse should be interpreted. So it should be interpreted as a literal 1,000 years because there is no evidence in the text that God intended this to be anything other than a literal interpretation. And I just want you to hear it real quickly so I can, you can see what I'm talking about. <clears throat> I'll, I'm going to read uh, uh, chapter 20. I'll do 1 through 6, verse 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So the reason why this makes such a big difference, well, among other reasons, is because for those of you that are familiar with Revelation and then the controversy between a premillennial understanding, a postmillennial understanding, and an amillennial understanding, that kind of hinges on these verses. So for those, for those people who are premillennial, they take a millennium, again, literally as a thousand years. But if you don't take that interpretation, it allows you to end up in either the postmillennial or the amillennial camp. So, and again, I hope you're able to see as I was reading the text, there's nothing in the text to indicate that we should interpret a thousand years or a millennium as anything different than what it really says. Literally, 1,000 years. All right, so when you're talking about redefining, here's how to avoid this mistake. The first tip is to use a good concordance. And so, uh, hopefully, most of you will remember several weeks back, uh, I think it was, uh, I think when... Um, the mark, I know, I think it was a lesson three. We brought in a lot of resources and everything. So a good con a, a concordance is, it's a book that'll show where else in the Bible the same word was used that it has the same meaning. 
Um, for those of you that have a study Bible, most study Bibles will actually have somewhat of an abridged concordance in the back of it. Um, but really, you want kind of a more complete or more exhaustive concordance to really kind of uh, give you a better resource. Um, so that's helpful because then allows you to kind of look up and see where else in the Bible that word was used. You can make sure that it means the same thing. And then, all, again, all, we always want to define a word by the context in which it is used. And when a word can be used in several different ways, the specific meaning of a word and a text will be determined by the context. You're going to see this theme kind of over and over and over. It's very important when you're trying to understand the text, uh, you know, any given passage, you want to understand it in context. You want to see what comes before it and what comes after it. You want to do study as to what's going on in the chapter, how that chapter fits in with the rest of the book, because that context tells you the meaning. All right, we're going to go on to error number two, and uh, Dr. Mayhew entitled this error anglicizing. Uh, angle, because that kind of refers to English. Um, so anglicizing is drawing theology from the English text alone and not taking into account the meaning of the word in the original language. So as we all know, the, the Bible was, was originally written mostly in the languages of Hebrew and Greek. Now, obviously, uh, we live in a time period where we have the benefit of, of a lot of translations. Some, some of them are good ones. Um, but again, the danger is whenever you translate a word from the original language to English, you, there's a chance that you may lose some of the meaning. And so the danger is if you accept the meaning of the English word and you don't pay any attention to the real meaning of the word in the original language, you can, again, kind of miss the mark. You can kind of end up with a different meaning than what God intended. And I'll illustrate that here. All right, so the positive confession movement, and as it relates to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Now I'm going to read the verse, and I'll also kind of go into more of what the positive confession movement is. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 reads, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All right, so remember that word confession. Okay, so the positive confession movement, what is that? So basically it's a movement out there that believes that you can change your reality based on your faith. You can bring about whatever you wish by simply stating it, and God is bound to make this a reality. Kind of one of the catchphrases that the people in this movement will often use is, whatever you confess, you will possess. Okay, so... All right, so again, there's the, there's the verse. So when you're talking about, the, it all kind of hangs on the, how you understand the word confession. So, if you take the meaning, let's, if you look at the English transla translation of confess, um, this was taken from a Merriam-Webster's online dictionary. So, the, the, and, and for those of you that don't know, the way dictionaries work is they tend to list the most common meaning up at the top as number one, and they kind of go down there to, more less, or to, to less used or more obscure kind of meanings. So, the most popular meaning there, number one, to tell or make known, or to admit, as in he confessed his guilt. And so, really, you have to go down to number three, to I think that's kind of the closest meaning to what they're talking about, to declare faith in or adherence to or to profess. Okay, profess just simply means to state something. And I suppose it, it, it could also possibly mean to repeat something. So you can kind of see how 
they kind of would, if, based on that understanding, if you believe that confession there just means stating it, you can kind of see the logic of their error. But what about the definition of the word in the original text? So in, in uh, Hebrew, so this was actually written in Greek, so the word retranslated as confession, this word in the original Greek is homologeo. And the meaning of the word is to say the same thing or to agree with. It doesn't mean simply to profess or to state. So, oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead here. So, and again, I also want to just quickly point out here, And then also, so if you, if you do some more further study into Hebrews 4.14, so when it's talking about the confession here, at issue is the verse is the confession of faith in Christ. And this is kind of a cross-reference to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. So really, it's not accurate to understand this verse as saying that you can just simply state whatever you want and it's now God's prerogative to make that happen. This is really talking about the confession of faith, which is faith in Jesus Christ. So... How to avoid this mistake, again, is to study the word first in the original language to make sure that you avoid building the theology strictly on the English translation of the word alone. And again, we want to determine what the word specifically means and what it refers to in the text under consideration. And then you also want to look at the word in the broader context of the paragraph or the chapter. So again, this is another helpful resource in this area would be uh, like Greek and Hebrew dictionaries. Because um, uh, obviously that'll do a really good job of making sure you understand the meaning that the, the original uh, language is talking about. All right. Doing okay on time. All right. <clears throat> and then finally, error number three in chapter 10 is the error of mysticizing. So mysticizing, that means taking the meaning of a text from numerical codes supposedly hidden in the words of Scripture or possibly hidden verbal meanings extracted from the words and sentences so that they're not to be understood in a normal literary sense. Okay. I'll kind of, maybe in just kind of more plain stating it, it's, there are a lot of people out there who believe that there are different kind of secret codes that's hidden within the text of the Bible. And some of these codes can be numerical in nature, um, and there's, there's, there's a certain, I guess, uh, I don't know if science is the right word, but there's the idea that you can use computer programs and you can kind of feed different texts of the Bible into these computer programs, and these programs will do an analysis, and it looks for different patterns in the text. So one popular method might be, you know, you assign a number value to every letter of the alphabet, and then you kind of look and see if there's any interesting things that pop up when you do different things to those codes. I'm not really much of a computer scientist. I don't do a lot with computer analysis, but, you know, it is what it is. So um, one example of this, you know, so hidden numerics or gematria. So, again, that attempts to authenticate the Bible by showing the logic of the supposed numerical values of the alphabet of the text. So <clears throat> one, this was a really good quote that I wanted to point out from, from chapter 10 from uh, John J. Davis in his book, Biblical Numerology. He points out that the whole system is based on a false premise. There is no proof that the Hebrews of the Old Testament used their alphabet in this manner. And so again, going back to one of the principles we talked about, how that God wants to be clear and that he is clear in his delivery of scripture, 
It wouldn't make any sense for God to try to embed some sort of secret code in the text for us to try to ferret out and understand. And also, if you believe that you need computer programs to try to more fully understand the Bible, we've only had computers for maybe the last 30, 40 years. So, until, so basically, the, the thousands of years of history where people didn't have computers, it would have been impossible to have an accurate understanding of God's word. Well, I mean, if that's true, I mean, why, why would God do that? So, I mean, again, it just it, it doesn't make sense. Here's other examples of mysticizing, you know, like I said, like I mentioned, using computer analysis to try to identify hidden codes within the text of the Bible. Um, also, contriving other systems of analysis based on the numbers and codes. I just kind of want to quickly read, this is from page 142 uh, in chapter 10. I just couldn't think of a good way to summarize this, so I just want to read what Dr. Mayhew wrote. Um, quoting him, Recently I was discussing Revelation chapter 13, verse 18, and the identity of Antichrist based on the number 666. A man told me that he had numerically identified the Antichrist using the following analysis. The Latin name for, for Pope is Vicarius Philae Dei. I apologize if I butchered that. My Latin is not great. If the numerical equivalents are substituted for the Latin letters, their sum is 666. Oh my goodness, how interesting. Our point here is not to identify Antichrist, but rather to say that this mystical interpretation of 666 using Latin letters and their numerical equivalents is tenuous at best. You can make just about anyone the Antichrist by using 666 as their identity if you arbitrarily choose the right language and numerical system to work from. So really, guys, what I want you to take from this is it really seems to me like most of the time the people who are doing these kind of things, they're more interested in, it, it, it seems like some sort of, uh, you know, attempt to amuse themselves, really. I mean, it's just kind of looking for interesting numbers or interesting codes or interesting anomalies, but it really doesn't add to our understanding of the Bible. It's not clear. And that's really what we're, our goal is when you're talking about proper hermeneutics, is we want to understand what God was saying. Our goal here is not to try to contrive interesting little uh, you know, codes or interesting little number systems. It's we want to get to what God was talking about. And then another example of mysticizing is certain, uh, some private or home Bible studies. Raise your hand if you've ever been in a Bible study, maybe in someone's home or otherwise, where it was said, what this verse means to me is. Yep, I see some hands out there. Yeah, this is very dangerous, guys, because again, the, when you're doing a Bible study, the goal is not to say what it means to you. I mean, with all due respect, it really doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what God wanted to mean when he said it. And so whenever you, if you ever hear that, that phrase or anything similar to that phrase, just run, because whatever is about to follow is probably not going to be accurate. I mean, and also be very wary if, you, if there's ever someone who says, I don't think anyone has ever come up with this before. I have a completely novel idea of this verse. There have been, God has used many godly people throughout history that have spent a lot of time writing, writing different studies who have, who have done a pretty good job of recording what, the, what different verses mean. I'm not going to say that everyone is correct, but the odds of us coming up with a truly novel definition or meaning that no other you know, godly Bible scholar has ever come up with before in history is very, very low. <laughs> That's because the Holy Spirit uses uses believers um, in, in a lot of time, I mean, in a lot of times we will corroborate each other instead of coming up with 
completely different meanings. So again, be very careful. All right, and then finally, how to avoid this mistake. It's just as simple as rejecting the idea that the meaning of the text is derived from some sort of secret or hidden meaning apart from the plain reading of the text. This is a tried and true method, guys. It goes back to look at the text, understand the meaning of the text, especially in the context of the verses and the chapters around it. If you do that, you're going to avoid this mistake. And then I'll finally just finish with, uh, with a quote from Dr. Mayhew from, from chapter 10. The Bible is a book from God that communicates truth with words, sentences, and paragraphs. Language is used by God in its normal sense, which includes literary figures of speech. Each text has one primary interpretation or meaning as intended by God. Our task is to first draw out the correct interpretation, and then we can advance the many right applications. Because as we know, every Bible verse has one meaning. It has one interpretation, but it has many possible applications. All right. And uh, that is the end of the presentation, everyone. Uh, If you please uh, bow your heads, I will go ahead and I'll pray and uh, then dismiss us. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for you. We're so grateful for your church. And we're so grateful for your word. And we're so grateful that... Uh, you are a God of clarity and that you, uh, you want us to know you, that you did not hide yourself and yet in, in love and mercy and grace you revealed yourself to us uh, most clearly through your word, Father. Um, we're, so, um, we're so grateful that we are part of a church that holds the Bible in high regard, Father. And I just want to uh, ask you to, to continue to be with us, Father. Continue to give us a, a hunger for you and a hunger for your word. Uh, help us to grow us in maturity and uh, just grow us in our desire to, to set time apart in our busy schedules to seek you, to seek you diligently in your word and, and to, uh, to follow the sound principles that you've set for understanding what you mean by what you say. And uh, Father, once we understand what you mean by what you say, uh, help us to apply it ruthlessly to our lives. Help us to not uh, try to suppress anything that we find difficult or that may clash with our comfort level, Father, but give us the courage to, to uh, follow your word, even in the midst of a generation that, uh, that attacks us for doing so, Father. Give us boldness and give us a love for you and a love for each other. It's your name that we pray. Amen.